0: This is a different sort of a sermon series for me. I have prayed with my elders. I have talked with friends about it. If you know me and my commitment to the scriptures, and maybe if you understand how I've been raised, I feel a little dirty. And that's false legalism. What do I mean by that? For all of my life, I have opened up a book in the Bible pretty much and have walked through a text and gone next week to the next and the next week to the next, and I find safety and security there. I like that better, but I have become very impassioned with the fact that we have children who are no longer worshiping our God now because they're facing issues in life, and we never addressed them as we were walking verse by verse through a book. And I know in my own life, I am consistently tempted to hear the barrage of lies from the devil. And I'm tempted to discount what God's Word says because I can't remember how to systematically put it together sometimes. And so, therefore, we have gone on this process of saying, at least for this short season of time, we're going to do some topical sermons. Oh, they're going to be expositional in that we're not going to take the text out of context. And we're going to use proper Bible verses to apply God's Word. But for the next couple months, we're going to be hitting some topics that you said you needed to hear God's word in regards to. So today we start with why in the world would modern people who are intelligent base their lives on some antique book? Are we fools? putting our heads in the sand and plugging our ears and going, la, 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 because we don't want to hear what educated people have to say? Or is this really God's Word that stands the test of time? Let's get into the Word and see what we learn. Father, I ask for help that you would take that which is written, that which has been learned, but give me skill in delivery But even more than that, Lord, would you please, the Holy Spirit who already is filling this place, make us more aware of your presence and impact our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Levi was a historical figure. His neighbors don't like him. His family is embarrassed of him. Why? Because he is a tax collector. He makes his living profiting Rome, profiting himself, and stealing from his neighbors. But everything changes when Jesus Christ comes along and sees him at the table. He appears to be in the act of doing his thievery when Jesus says, come, follow me. And there's something about Jesus, the man, and his miracles that make Matthew go, I'm inclined to do so. He becomes a disciple of Jesus, a friend of Jesus, and things start changing in his life. From the inside out, his sanctification is proven. It's shown as the Holy Spirit starts to do his work, and he becomes a man less interested in the love of money and materialism and more interested in in showing compassion for people and caring for them skills start to show up like evangelism and preaching and teaching and exorcism and healing. And he starts spending his life not using people but spending himself for God's glory and their good. Well, Jesus lives, Jesus dies, Jesus is resurrected from the grave and ascends into heaven and the merry band of disciples go about doing their work. But about 30 to 60 years later, Matthew develops another skill. It's the skill of writing. Jesus had promised, "There's going to be a day when I send the Holy Spirit, and He will bring to remembrance everything that I've done and taught so that you'll be able to pass this along to others." And that which Jesus promised happened. And so Matthew pins his gospel. And after a few initial chapters, he starts off with this Sermon on the Mount. And he gets to the end, and Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, remembers how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount. Here are the words. Everyone, then, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fail or fall. Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Very quickly, what do you learn from this passage? You see that Jesus says, "Uh, I got words, I got doctrine, I have instruction for you. I am the patriarch, the prophet, the priest. I am the king, I am the judge, I am the wonderful counselor, I'm the logos, I'm the way, and I am the truth and the life, and I have words, I have instruction, and I'm pretty good at delivering it to you, for I have the Holy Spirit in abundance, and I teach as one with authority. Jesus understands he has his words, they belong to him. But he understands that there's two reception to his words. There are some who are inclined to listen, to hear, and to do. Others, maybe they hear, maybe they don't, but they're not going to do those words. They are not going to order their life, their houses, their family, their nation upon these words. Maybe some of them, for sure not all of them. They know better. Jesus then sees two consequences. Those who understand Jesus' words, hear and do them, they are the ones who, when the storms of life and the questions of life come, their houses stand, for they are built on a rock-solid foundation. Other people? Not so fortunate. They look good. Their houses are shiny to begin with. Everything's clean and looks like it's in order, but when the storms of life come, everything falls to pieces. For they built their houses, their lives, their families, maybe even their nations on the shifting sands of lies. So now the rest of this sermon is just applying this. And my prayer has been with the session back there, that God would make this much more than a lecture, so I'll be skipping through my notes, and if you want these notes, just let me email them to you. Maybe that will help us carry your attention, get the big ideas across. You can spend a lifetime studying apologetics on Scripture. But let's just walk down this road, and let's see if the Lord grabs your heart with the importance of His Word for today. Don't we have questions? Everybody has questions. Everybody knows that something cannot come from nothing, so there must have been a something before the everything, but what is that something, or what is that someone? Something kick-started our immense, expanding, unfathomable, beautiful universe. Everybody knows that, but the big question is origin. What was the first cause? What was the first thing? And then we start talking about mankind, humankind, homo sapiens. Who are we? I mean, where did our first parents come from? Were our first parents uh, cosmic dust? Mere matter? Were our first parents grown-up mammals? Or were our first parents created by the hand of god from the dust of this earth are we mere matter grown up individuals are we maturing gods as some would say or are we special creatures made in god's image everybody where does this soul consciousness come from this idea that i need to have significance i need to matter i need community where does this come from this sense of morality This idea of right and wrong. Why do we have a sense of morality and justice and equity? Why do we buy books on these things, read blogs, listen to podcasts? And why are we sitting in assemblies like this asking the deeper questions in life? The same is not being had by your cats and dogs and those in the zoo. Mere animals don't ask such questions, but men and women do. And men and women, where do we get those ideas? Male and female? Is there really any difference? Is there any distinction? A lot of people are asking these questions these days. Hey, I mentioned morality. The Declaration of Independence starts with these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Really? Rights? Wrongs? Is this how the wild kingdom operates? What makes lying and stealing wrong? Why the uproar over Bernie Madoff? When it comes to sex, who writes these rules? Why can't everyone just have a plural, plural, flexible relationship with men, women, children, and beasts? I mean, come on, you judgmental people. Give Jeffrey Epstein a break. Why not practice racism, slavery, and murder? Maybe we shouldn't judge the black men who sold their brothers, their sons and their daughters, or the white men who marketed them. Quit being so tight. Why would you think that black lives matter? What about life? It's a harsh world out there, isn't it? We have explosions going on, evidently, explosions that bring life into being, supposedly. We squash beetles, we swat flies, we shoot deer, and we eat chicken. No one cares how we remove the fatty tissues from our body, so why do you people care how I remove the tissue from the womb? Why not get rid of the unbeating heart in the womb and the unwanted beating heart of our middle schoolers? And if it's compassionate to put a horse out of his misery, then why not just show compassion to the aged and other hurting people and do the same? These are questions that everybody has to ask, and lots of different answers are given. Why not just live out the hedonistic motto? Just live your whole life. Eat, live, drink, die, but be merry in the process. Why not live out the Darwinian principle? It's survival of the fittest, baby. It's either kill or be killed, so I'm going to strike first and get mine before you do that. Or why not just ask the question of the nihilist? Man, If there is so much pain coming over the horizon, and I am just a cosmic accident, and I have no meaning or significance, then what's the big lasting question? Why not just kill myself and stop all the needless suffering, sure, to come my way? These are big questions. Something makes them right or wrong, the answers. And who says, who is to judge? And what of the judge? Is there a God? Is it a he? Is it a she? Is it a we or a they? Are there many of them? Am I God? Is there anything non-material and spiritual out there? And if there is, how powerful is that God? And what does he think? What does he desire What does he expect? How would I know? And even more simple is, how do I date him or tip him into blessing me or at least keep him from squashing me? These are questions everybody asks, every culture in every age. Then come the eternal life questions. What happens when I die? When I breathe my last, is there an afterlife? Is there an after death? If there is a land beyond the river, are there many roads that get me there? And what are we supposed to do with all this religion? Are we supposed to pick one? Hey, I know, maybe we can start our own. This is what culture does. It was the late Stephen Hawking who said, All my life I've been fascinated by the big questions that face us and have tried to find scientific answers to them. If, like me, you have looked at the stars and tried to make sense of what you see, you too have started to wonder what makes the universe exist. Everybody has questions. And we have the answers. Because we have the wonderful Counselor. We have a Jesus who has His words. In this room, most of us believe in God. That makes us theists. In this room, most of us believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That makes us Trinitarian theists. We believe that God sent His only Son and that Jesus Christ is the King of the universe who gave us His righteousness, took upon Himself our sin, and He is the one who will reign forever and ever. That makes us Christian theists. And we are biblicists. Why do we come to this conclusion? Partly we believe in a God because of what we see in general revelation, but we have also had access to the words of God, penned by his friends, collected by his people, and kept for thousands of years. We are people of the book. We're people of the Bible. Scripture alone is a mantra that at least in our religious community, we have made much of. We are people standing on the promises of God. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. But skeptics ask us, and our children ask us, And frankly, sometimes, if we're honest, we ask ourselves, are we living in some kind of a pipe dream? Have we been smoking this Christian weed so long that we're starting to think fuzzy? Why the mania? Why are we so absolutely sure that we know the truth regarding identity? humanity, origin, morality, eternal life, salvation, gender, sexuality. I mean, everybody knows that we can't trust the writers, and everybody knows that even if we could, we don't have good copies of what they wrote, and everyone knows that they were they were living some urban legend that was put together largely by Constantine, and everyone knows that those who are educated now have completely disbunked, not only the Bible, but Christianity, and that now, if you're really an intellectual, all that religious stuff is religulous, in the words of Bill Mayer, and that all that is is matter, in the words of Carl Sagan, and that you might as well just be a happy agnostic, in the words of many of our friends. But is that the truth? Why are we so sure that we have a wonderful counselor who has ordained a wonderful book? Well, we have reasons. We have evidence. And that's what I want to do for a moment is whet your appetite. And this is where I'm just going to have to skip, skim, try to keep your attention, and come back on the other side and encourage your heart. Evidence number one, the fulfilled prophecies. You know, God doesn't just expect you to believe. God oftentimes gives evidence. And so in the Old Testament, God gave Moses the ability to perform some miracles, some magic of sorts, and people would say, there's something special about that guy. The same is true of their prophets. In the Israelite historical documents, it says this, that if a prophet says something's going to come past, and it doesn't, don't believe that person. He speaks a lie. As a matter of fact, put him to death. The idea being that sometimes God gives his prophets and preachers the ability to predict the future, and then you would be able to say, wow, that guy's telling the truth. The same is true of your Bible. Yes, you can just blindly accept it by faith, But you don't have to, for there is evidence. One of the evidence is fulfilled prophecies. There are over 2,000 specific prophecies in the Bible, 300 of which belong to Jesus Christ. Prophets spoke of the fall of Jerusalem and her temple, which was ludicrous from a Jewish point of view. I mean, God spent all this time getting the people into the land, getting David to the city of Jerusalem, building Zion, and having within it this great temple by Solomon where his spirit moves in, and now the prophets are telling us God's taking it down? They did, and it happened. The good news is that God also, through other prophets, said it's going to be rebuilt, He, even hundreds of years before it happened, said there's going to be this king whose name is Cyrus, and Cyrus is going to send people back to the land and fund it, and hundreds of years later, that exactly happened through King Cyrus. God foretold the fall of Babylon. Once again, that's unthinkable, for this is a world power, but it happened, and God said it would never be built or rebuilt again. Now, it's been very interesting in history. There have been two people who have tried to rebuild Babylon. The first was Alexander the Great. He was struck dead with a fever. The second, Saddam Hussein. It didn't work out so well for him. The same could be said of Nahum in predicting the fall of Nineveh. But let's go to the prophecies of Jesus. Three hundred prophecies of Jesus made in the Old Testament, specific prophecies, that he would do battle with Satan, be born of a woman's seed, not a man's, be of Abraham's lineage and be a son sacrificed by his father, that he would come from Judah's tribe and be the sacrificial Passover lamb. This Messiah to come would be a prophet born of a virgin through David's lineage, and he would come 483 years after the order to rebuild the temple." That he would be born in Bethlehem, cause trouble in Ramah, escape to Egypt, and arrive in Jerusalem on a donkey. That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, have pierced hands and feet, have his side pierced, drink gall and vinegar, see his clothing distributed by lot, and ultimately be resurrected. The late James Kennedy writes, in all the writings of Buddha and Confucius, you will not find one single example of a predicted prophecy. Uh, Maybe in the Quran you will, for there's one instance of one specific prophecy, a self-fulfilling prophecy, that Muhammad himself would return to Mecca. This is quite different from the self-fulfilling prophecy of Jesus who said he would return from the grave. 2,000 prophecies, 300 regarding Jesus Christ. There's something magical, supernatural, about this book we call the Bible. Secondly, the unity of the message. Imagine going to a a library and collecting a, a group of books, five dozen books or so, and imagine them coming from different authors, 40 of them speaking three languages from three different continents, and you have to select books that were written from 700 A.D. until the modern day. And then you put them all together, and what do you find? A consistent theme. That's what you find in the Bible. Josh MacArthur made his day presenting this information. Sixty-six books written by 40 authors from different backgrounds and castes, from Africa, Asia, and Europe, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, over 15 centuries. And what's the story? Creation, fall, redemption, glory and it fits together like there's a divine author behind it. It's kind of like a baby, the Bible is, where you know you're pregnant, and everything that baby is is there, but you really can't see it or experience it. But as it grows, you start experiencing and can realize more, especially with modern technology. As it's delivered, you learn more, and finally one day you learn who this child is who always was. It's the same person, just greater revelation. That's your Bible. Or like the seed, which starts with a little seed but glows to a plant, blossoms, and then there comes fruit. One illustration I saw was imagine that you had uh, men over there working on, on, on rocks, chiseling them out. Back there, you have another group. Over there, some more, and over here, some more. And then the day comes when you send out your, your trucks and you bring in... All of these rocks that they knew what they were doing with the rock, but they had no clue exactly how it's fitting together. But when you come, it's like a Lego Star Wars um, ship. The pieces are put together. It builds a building. Those rocks do, with 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 the big walls and with the big passageways and the steeple. How can that happen? It doesn't just happen. It's the work of God behind the scenes. We have a divine architect, a divine author, a supernatural mastermind, and the Bible is a presentation of that. Thirdly, the validity of the writers. You can't question the vicinity of the authors. They were in the neighborhood where all the action happened. Excluding the book of Genesis, all the books were written by eyewitnesses. They were written by eyewitnesses to eyewitnesses, which means it's easy to debunk that which is happening. They're all written, the Gospels were, within 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. People say, oh, the Da Vinci Code, it became urban legend. You can't write about the things that they write to people who were there they would easily be able to discredit those testimonies. You can't question the vicinity of the authors. You shouldn't question the bias. People say, well, you can't believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for they're Christians. Or are we gonna say the same thing about Jewish survivors of the Holocaust? That because they are biased, and, and biased historians are all there is, there are, but it doesn't mean because you have bias that you're not communicating truth. You shouldn't question the integrity of the authors. The Old Testament authors were largely writing to Israel about how Israel was going down. Not a real happy message to, believing, to be giving to the king, his court, and citizens. The New Testament authors were in the like manner writing things that put them at odds with Jews and Romans. That's not safe. That's not easy. That's not fun. You shouldn't question their integrity. And if they were lacking integrity and were writing a fallacious account, would Moses really write about the horrible sins of all the great Hebrew patriarchs? That's not a way to win friends and influence people. Would put his own sins there? Who would have written the book of Judges and said, Hey, Israel, we're the happy people of God. It's a spiral of insanity. You have Samuel and Jeremiah writing about King David. And his horrible dance with sin. And the poor disciples. They could have, they would have flunked their courses in PR as they keep over and over again presenting how they lacked faith, how they were angry at the wrong thing, how they were selfishly motivated and disbelieving. But one should notice the precision. These writers, they use specific numbers, names, and locations. All of these could have been verified by their original reading audience. And these have been verified by archaeologists and historians. Evidence number four, the transmission of the original text. Some may say, yeah, yeah, they wrote those things back then, but we have no clue that anything we have today is exactly corresponding to what they wrote back then. Well again we have evidence to the contrary. If you, if you analyze the historical ancient Bible with the same rules that you that you study any other historical book, you will give credence to many manuscripts versus few, early manuscripts versus later, and distributed or broadcast manuscripts as opposed to some that just come from a little location. And when you put those things together, long story short, we have 5,500 ancient manuscripts in the Greek, 18,000 in other languages. We've cataloged more than 86,000 references to the Bible by men before AD 325. If you lose the big idea, here it is. Compared to other works of antiquity, the Bible has more reason to be believed than any other selection of ancient literature. If you apply the same rationale and weight to the Bible as you do other historical documents, it's clear that you have an incredible, accurate copy. Well, evidence five, I could talk with you about the assessment of archaeology and history. The Bible's been proven factually correct over and over again. Science, history, and archaeology are the Christians' friends. We are not scared in any way of revelation, whether it be general or special. Number six, the inexhaustible wisdom of God. This book analyzes and answers the greatest questions of all of life. R.A. Torrey says, There is not a truth to be found anywhere on moral or spiritual subjects that you cannot find in substance within the covers of this old book. I have often, when speaking on the subject, asked anyone to bring me a single truth on moral or spiritual subjects which, upon reflection, I could not find within the covers of this book, and no one has ever been able to do so. I love this sentence. Other writings indeed have jewels of thought. Thumbs up. But they are, whether they know it or not, stolen jewels. And stolen from the very book. They ridicule. Evidence number seven. There is this guy, Jesus, who was a historical figure, and they have a real problem. They couldn't find his body. And when you look at what Jesus and his men thought of the scriptures, they thought of the prophets, the writings, and the law as all coming from God. God. Jesus called the law of Moses the word of God. Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. And he says one jot or tittle, one little part of a letter will never go away. The law will be maintained. And Jesus promised New Testament scriptures that he would bring to remembrance those things and his men would write, which is why Paul and Peter are able to look at each other's writings and say these things are the very word of God. Evidence number eight. My favorite, The Transformation of Characters and Culture. What kind of book is this? You look at Israel in comparison with the nations, and you see the sanctity of life that God put there. But Then you get into the new world, and if you don't have something, maybe in your small groups, look up this, and I won't read it to you now. It's an ancient writing from a, not ancient, hundred years old from a pastor called One Solitary Life. It talks about this man named Jesus who comes from an obscure place without the trappings of modern-day leaders and how he was able to affect the world. It would be worth your reading in your own devotions. Napoleon said, I search in vain in history to find something similar to Jesus Christ. Nations pass away, thrones crumble, but the church remains. We celebrate his birthday, world around. Time has been divided by his coming into A.D. or B.C., 2.4 billion people profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. It's like the kingdom of heaven started as a mustard seed and grew beyond wild proportion, which is something he said would happen. And he changes neighborhoods and nations and men. Those who are most evil in your life, they are the ones... are moving further and further away from the teachings in scripture those who are most virtuous what do you notice their lives are coming more and more into balance and harmony with that which is found in the bible the bible really does have power to change people nations number nine Never has a book been so opposed, so popular. Laura and I were watching a North Korea documentary this week. In order for you to go to China to get in one of those groups who can go and become a, a visitor to North Korea, they have these long lists of rules that you have to keep while you're on one of those tours and one of them is, no Bibles. Why? What's the big deal of this antiquated book? People hate it, and yet it's the most published, most purchased book. Again, D.J. Kennedy says, the Bible is like the anvil with the hammers banging against it. The hammers have struck, but they are wearing down while the anvil stands strong. Then number 10. Why? What is the evidence of the Bible? Well, you may not like this last one, but I like it. The Bible's come alive to me. It means the world to me. And there are other friends who would say the same thing. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. And what has the Bible done? It has addressed my concerns and my questions. It's educated my mind and given me more consistency than I normally would have. It's calmed my soul. It's cured my guilt. It motivates my heart. It guides my step. It's been of incredible benefit as it aids my family, and oh how it has benefited my community and my nation as they have followed it in years past. So I have lots of evidence as to why I have faith, that the Bible is the Word of God. I didn't have to quit thinking to come to this conclusion. But what's our great temptation? I'll just finish this without even looking at my notes and see where the Holy Spirit takes me here. I don't have time to look at the notes. Our great temptation, your great temptation, that we listen to the lies of the devil. This is what he did in eternity past. When he went to a third of the angels, that appeared, said, hey, let's disregard whatever God has said and whatever God desires, and why don't you people follow me? And the angels or the demons, whoever they were, started following Lucifer. God booted them from heaven, but the propaganda ministry just began. He shows up in the garden. He goes to the created beings, Adam and Eve, and he looks at them and says, I want you to discount God's character. He's not looking out for you and discount his words. Listen to me. They did, and it was catastrophic. We have God showing up in the Old Testament, convincing Israel to listen to false prophets. When God makes a promise like, I'm going to give you food, they disbelieve and start listening to the lie of Satan, the temptation that it would be better off if we went back to Egypt. They get to the Jordan River. God says, let's go, boys. They say, no, we don't believe you. They have big giants there. Over and over throughout Israel, you have God against the false prophets. In the New Testament, over and over again, you have Jesus versus the false teachers and preachers. He's the liar. Jesus Christ called him such. Jesus Christ said, I I know who this guy is. He's the great deceiver. And so in our culture today, we have media that's just killing us like it's killing Tony Dungy. We have educators, some in this room, who are doing their best to present God's truth in the classroom, surrounded by many others who will do anything they can to steer us away from our ancient doctrinal views found in the Scripture. We have legislators and doctors who play fast and loose with facts as they are being used by Satan to pervert our thinking. Our culture looks at us like we're some kind of religious Neanderthals, that we're just stuck in some ancient way of living. They mock us like we mock people on TV of cults and clans. The temptation is great because of our sin for us to accept that temptation. In Romans 1, it says, God has clearly revealed... But the natural default state of man or the remnant of flesh within us is what? To hear what God says, to know what God says, to suppress what he says, and to replace it with something else. So now what do I see? I see this incredible temptation for me, and it's here. You ought to see me at the racquetball courts with my fellas as they're talking about, Women, or they're talking about uh, some issue. Man, I should be bolder than I am, but there's still this temptation to listen to the lies of the world, listen to the lies of Satan, and then morph on wisdom. That's your temptation as well, and that's exactly where you guys are living. You have this whole high school life where people are saying really 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 and then you're going to go to college and you're going to have the most gifted of professors doing everything they can to knock your knees out from under you and those of you who have younger children it's going to get worse so now what do we do we end here with our christian priority the grass withers and the flower fades away so says jim stevenson So says Isaiah. It's not going anywhere. The Word of God, though, abides forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not, says Jesus. So shall my word go out of my mouth. It shall not return empty. It will accomplish what I purpose. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Therefore, we're going to be noble Bereans Reading every single day, saying, Does that square with what my Bible has to say? Like Joshua, this book of the law will not depart from our mouth, but we will meditate on it day and night to be careful to do all that's written in it. We will gather here and we will admonish one another and teach one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as the Word of Christ dwells richly in us. And by God's help, we will hear Jesus' words and do them. Why? Because the storms of life are coming and the storms of the afterlife are coming and we want to be found to be those wise people who hear his words and do them. And not only will we be found standing, but so too will our children and our grandchildren if we are really people of the book. Sola Scriptura is a reformed mantra of a bunch of religious fellows who said, the church has been going askew. Let's get back to the scriptures. That's what I'm calling us to. May God help us. We got modern questions, modern issues, modern problems with ancient, inspired, authoritative answers found in a book called Scripture.